what I'm going to do is have Rob pass this out for me. If this feels like a Sunday school class, I apologize for that. But what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be going through the book of Romans and just doing a little bit of a survey from it. Pass those out for me again. Thank you. That was a handout that we did at Sunday school. Not everything that I have on my stuff is in that. Um, some stuff is not, and some stuff I took from that that I thought was interesting. But you got the sheet. You can read it if you want. You can make your own opinion of it if you want. I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was fantastic. I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was okay. So what we're going to do is we're just going to do a quick overview of the book of Romans, right? And then I'm going to land on Romans 9, 10, and 11 and try to do an overview of that. And Romans 9, 10, and 11 is what is God doing with the nation of Israel? What is God doing with the nation of Israel? Has God forsaken the nation of Israel? Has he cut them out? Has he cut them off? What's he doing with them? What's happening with the nation of Israel? Why are Gentiles pouring into the church? And we see very little Jews today coming to know Christ as their Savior. So I think Romans 9, 10, and 11 is where I want to land and spend most of my time and just breezing through that and then breezing through other pieces of Scripture. So, to get started, a little introduction to the book of Romans. Martin Luther began his preface of the book of Romans this way. Let me grab my water. Martin Luther began his preface of the book of Romans this way. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament in a very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as a daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Now that sentiment portrays the perspective and priority of a man who's long in prison, who has discovered the key to release from his bondage. Whether the Christian occupies himself with the same portion of or truth from Romans every day, there can be no doubt that the book of Romans, Paul's theological magnus opus, breathed out by the Spirit of God through the pen of Paul was the dynamic of the Reformation. And it has been a major doctrinal source book for every, everything from Christians' ca children's catechisms to church creeds to systematic theologies ever since. John Calvin described Romans as a doorway to understanding the whole Bible. It is no coincidence that his own theological Magnum Opus, Institutes of the Christian Religion, contains more references by far to Romans than to any other book of the Bible. The Scripture Index features 10 columns of Romans alone, nearly 600 references. Romans has also been the fountainhead of salvation texts for multitudes of converts to Christianity. 
Luther himself described the effects of Romans 1, 16 to 17 on him in these words. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate of paradise. The 18th century legend John Wesley recounts in his own journal that he went very unwillingly to a society in the Aldergate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to Romans. When while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That was Romans 8, 2, he was quoting there. So the impact of Romans historically on the Christian church, both individually and corporately, is impossible to overstate. So now a little background, background on this book. The church in Rome was not started by Paul. In fact, he had not even visited the church there when he wrote Romans. It was apparently started by converts from Pentecost, assisted by converts from other churches, acquaintances with many people that, well, I didn't mean to read that, Paul penned Romans from Corinth about A.D. 56. His purpose in writing was, one, to announce his plan to visit Rome after his return to Jerusalem and to prepare the Christian community there for his coming, and therefore, two, to present a detailed statement of the gospel message he proclaimed, including an explanatory defense of God's character and plan for saving people. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that; those meanings of what that, of what I just read there. But there's this guy named Thomas Schreiner. I'm not sure who he is. All right. I think he wrote maybe in the 1800s, 1850s, 1860s. But Schreiner argues that the major motive for Paul in both visiting and therefore writing to the church at Rome was to make them his supporting base for his mission to the West, that's Spain. Intriguing and even likely as that may be, there seems to be little objective data in the text itself for overly certain on that point. So he disagrees with what whoever wrote that sheet there that I passed out. So Trina disagrees with that. Trina also notes that too many important doctrines, Lord's Supper, the church, eschatology, Christology, are omitted or abbreviated to justify the popular depiction of Romans as a comprehensive synopsis of Paul's theology, and I certainly agree with that 100%. So what is the book of Romans then, right? So what is this? I've read so many reasons as to why this book was read, but Schreiner goes on and he says this, and I agree with him 100%. And I think this is the total purpose of the book of Romans. Clearly enough, the theological fo focus is primary soteriology. In other words, that's a big word for the doctrine of salvation. A thorough explanation of Paul's gospel with attention given to the import related issues of law and grace. Chapter 7, 
Israel and the church, 9 through 11, which we're going to be looking at, and Christian unity and differences, 14 to 15. And I agree 100% with what he says. Like I said, all the stuff that I had really read from all my commentaries and the opening of, of the book of Romans, you guys probably have that stuff at home as well. If you read in the beginning of it, I saw a lot of reasons, but the basic reason for the for the book of Romans, in my opinion, is the fact that it was a it's a doctrine of salvation from beginning to end. The whole book is an explanation, it's an expansion of the gospel. It is explaining to us a lot of things about what the gospel is. So in chapters one through five, right? We have, we're all sinners, right? And where we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, all right, by grace alone. But I'll have you go to Romans, go to Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20. A little personal thing for me here. When I read this verse after I became saved, I said, oh, no wonder why that happened to me. So Romans 1, 19 through 20. And it says, it started in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And that's a pretty tough verse when you think of that, because I really believe in my own personal opinion that what we see in creation, as we look around and see the sun this morning and the grass and the trees and, and all that God does through his creation, that it's basically saying that people are going to be without excuse based on that alone. And when I was eight years old, I, I, I grew up as a Lutheran, right? All good Germans are Lutherans and all good Lutherans are Germans, right? So we, I was raised as a, as a Lutheran. Uh, my parents weren't faithful to church, but my dad figured I needed to learn religion. So he dropped me off at Sunday school, and my, him and my mother would go out and do things and come back and pick us up. The Lutheran church did a real good job of teaching me that I was a sinner, but I don't remember ever hearing the sound gospel there the whole time that I was, the, the time that I was there. So as I was going to um, this, the Lutheran church, I'd lay out in my backyard and I'd just look at creation and I'd be telling myself, there has to be a God. I'd be laying in my backyard, I'd be watching the clouds go together, come apart, I'd be watching dragonflies flying over me, wondering what I was doing, laying out in my backyard. And I kept telling myself, there has to be, there has to be a God, just based on what creation alone was telling me. And that's what made me keep searching until I eventually heard the gospel. And then I became saved. Actually, the first time I heard the gospel was when I became saved. So I was confirmed in the Lutheran church. Father said I was done. I didn't have to go back, and I never went back to the Lutheran church again. I was 14 years old. At 18 years old, I accepted Christ as my Savior when Nancy shared the gospel with me when we were in high school. So <clears throat> it, was this, it was this section of Romans right here. When I read this, I was like, that's me. I saw the creation and it was speaking to me the powers of God and his, his invisible attributes which convinced me that there was a God and I was shedding off the fact that 
I didn't believe that we evolved from monkeys that I was learning in high school. So anyways, so Romans 1, we're used to people. All right, then we have Romans 6, 7, and 8. So Romans 1 through 5 is the fact that we're all sinners, even Jews are sinners if, if they wanted to believe that, and how we're justified. And then Romans 6, 7, 8 is what I call the doctrine of sanctification. If you want to know what's going on in your life after you became justified, and you want to know why you feel the way you do, and you want to know where your help is coming from, it's in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And it'll explain to you exactly what's happening and what's going on within your hearts and even the struggles that we have as Christians because the sin nature hasn't been completely eradicated. It's still there to haunt us. Oh, what a beautiful day it's going to be. When I first <clears throat> read the book of Revelation and I knew that I was going to get this glorified body, I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to be able to fly. I'm going to be built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm going to be able to go through walls. But the older I'm getting and the more I'm realizing who I really am from the scriptures, and the more I struggle with this sin, even as a born-again believer, the more I'm realizing what a blessed time it's going to be to be able to serve the Lord in that glorified body, unhindered by the flesh, in complete purity. It's going to be amazing. I don't even think we can fathom what that's going to be like until that time takes, till that place, till that time takes place. And then we have Romans 9, 10, and 11, which I want to get to. I definitely want to be able to get through a lot of that. Um, a lot of prophecy in that as well. And everybody loves prophecy, so if that goes well, everybody will think this message is fantastic. And then you have Romans 12 through 16, which is really the, the practical section of the Bible. How we're supposed to live now that we've had 11 chapters of doctrine that have been laid out for us. And now we have the practical application of Romans 12 to 16. So now I'd like to have you go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. <clears throat> so it says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Everything that Paul had just talked about in 11 chapters of doctrine, now he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way, in case you haven't figured that out. Our church uses the ESV, and that's what everything is all in here. So um, if you guys got the King James, which I think most of you are probably going to have, um, unless you have it electronically, you can switch over back and forth. But I just wanted to let that know in case you're wondering what translation I'm using. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So based on everything that God has done for us, this is what Paul is saying. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That has the idea of like an Old Testament sacrifice where they would throw the parts of the animal up on the altar. And if there was any hypocrisy or any sin in our lives that weren't confessed, that smoke would go up to God and it would burn his nostrils. It, 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 was, it was irritating to him. But when you presented your sacrifice and you threw it on the altar and that smoke from the fat of the meat would begin to be able to bellow up, it was a sweet aroma to God if it was done correctly and not hypocrisy, contr a contrite heart to God, confess sin. 
So that's basically what that's saying there. <coughs> Which is your, it's our spiritual worship. It, it's what we really need to do. And it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable, what is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, a lot of people are looking for the will of God all the time, right? What's, what's the will of God? What's the will of God? You're never going to know the will of God until you present your body as a living sacrifice. If you read this over and over again, that's what it's saying. If you present your body as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship, and you're not conformed to the image of this world, you're, but you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that's the reading of the scriptures, then by testing you may discern what the will of God is. If you're not reading your Bible and you're not presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, you're never going to know what the will of God is. You're never going to know, should I do this? Should I buy this house? Should I take that job? Should I go to this church? Should I do this? What decision should I make here? So these, th this, this is another one of my favorite verses in the book of Romans right here. So the interesting thing about the Mosaic covenant was conditional. Right? We're going to talk a little bit more about that later, I think. But the Mosaic covenant was conditional. It was uh, obedience, uh, blessings for obedience, and curses for disobedience. And boy, did Israel get themselves in a lot of trouble by not obeying the Mosaic covenant. So it was do and be blessed. Grace says, you've been blessed, now do. That's the difference. And it's going to change. We have the indwelling power of the Spirit within us, which gives us the power to be able to do what God wants us to do, to motivate us to what God wants us to do in the right spirit. But grace, you're blessed, now do. All right, so that's a quick overview of, of, of Romans there. Now let's go to 9, 10, and 11. Probably not going to read a lot of verses there, but maybe you might want to leave your Bible open to that. So Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Now I want to really get into what, what's it saying here, and we'll talk a little bit about the nation of Israel and try to give you a quick overview of this thing here. So Romans 9, 10, and 11 answers the question, what is God doing with the nation of Israel? That's a good question. If you're an Israelite in the first century church, you're wondering, what is God doing with my nation? I'm coming to Christ. N not, more, not more Jews are coming to Christ. Once Cornelius, in uh, the book of Acts, the first convert, uh, Gentile convert, and then even the apostles were looking, going, wait a minute, hold it. What's going on with these Gentiles coming to Christ and the Jews are not? And they had a big meeting about this. And the fact that they came to the agreement like, oh, the Spirit of God is coming upon the Gentiles just like it came upon us. So let's keep on going with this. I'll go here and teach for the Gentiles. Peter stayed with the Jews, and I think you guys know the story. But most Christians do not have a good understanding of these chapters of Romans 9, 10, and 11. But there was also a doctrinal reason. So just go back in your Bibles to Romans 8, 28, and 30. So in 28 it says, And now we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good 
for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In that last verse 30, all of those terms, predestined, called, justified, and glorified are in the past tense. God predestined you, then he called you, then he justified you, and he's going to glorify you. As sure as he predestined you, and as sure as he called you, and as sure as he justified you, and most of us in this room today can account to that, it's just as sure as he's going to glorify us. There's no question about that at all. It's all in the past tense in, in the Greek language. But the question I have is a little side note. Where's a sanctification in this thing? Why is sanctification not there? That's the, that's a, this is a good question that I ask myself. Where's sanctification? Well, in the sanctification process, that's where we co-labor with, with the Spirit of God that's in us. It's still by God's grace, by all means. Don't think it's by works. But it's the Spirit of God working in us, that sanctification process, where we co-labor with the Spirit of God. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go to Philippians I don't have the I don't have the chapter there, just the verses. I think it's 1, 12 through 13, but I'm going to quote it anyways. I'm going to try to quote it. And that passage in Philippians tells us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God that worketh in you to do of his good work and his good pleasure. But the sanctification process isn't in these words. But the sanctification process is still very important. And we need to co-labor with the, with the Spirit of God so that we can become more like Christ as we're growing and being sanctified. <clears throat> so back to the doctrinal reason. If I'm a Christian, all right, or even a Jew, let's say, back in the first century church, right, and I see these things in the promises of verse 30, I can... You can almost see Paul saying this and someone in the back of the room raising their hand going, uh, Paul, um, what about the Jews? You're promising all this stuff, but what about the nation of Israel? What's going on with them? What's happening? If you cut them off, how can I trust this? How do I know God's not going to turn around and cut me off or cut us off, Paul? If he cut the Jews off and broke his promises with the Jews, how am I then going to be able to trust God? And I think that's a doctrinal reason behind this, other than maybe just the fact that what is God doing with the Jews? Here's a quote from Warren Worsby. And he says, Paul had argued in Romans 8 that the believer is secure in Jesus Christ and that God's election would stand. But someone might ask, what about the Jews? They were chosen by God, and yet now you tell us they are set aside and God is building his church? Did God fail to keep his promises with Israel? In other words, the very character of God was at stake. If God was not faithful to the Jews, how do we know he'll be faithful to the church? It's a very good question. If God's going to be fickle and he's not, I'm fickle. My salvation is fickle, 
in my relationship to God is fickle, but God's relationship to me is not. His steadfast love and his steadfast faithfulness towards us. So now I want to go, maybe I'm not going to have you stand Romans. Go to, go to Genesis chapter 15. Let me start this whole thing out with the Abrahamic covenant. God done with the Jews? He certainly is not. In the Abrahamic covenant, he almost tells that alone. <clears throat> so, Genesis 15, chapter 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is El Eliza of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and, and counted it to him as, as righteousness. Now I'm going to stop right there for a minute before I keep going. The Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. Can we understand that? It was unconditional. All right, we're going to see that as we go forward. The Mosaic covenant was conditional. All right, big difference. The nation of Israel was already a saved nation, a chosen nation by God, and God gave them the Mosaic Covenant, not for salvation, but this is how I want my people, my chosen nation, who's already been chosen by me and saved, this is how I want them to live on the face of the earth so that they can show my glory to the rest of the nations in the world. The Mosaic Covenant was never designed to save anybody. It was designed for them as a way to live to show God's honor and glory to the unsaved nations or to the, the, the pagan nations around them. All right, now let me pick it back up in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the, Chalde the Chaldeans, to give you this land to, po to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. And they did. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried, as a good, buried in, an, in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquities of the Amorites is not complete. When the sun had gone down, here we go. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoke fire pot 
and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river to Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kezanites, I'm going to butcher these words, the Hamanites and the Hittites and the Parasites. I think that's the Parasites, I'm not sure. Sounds better to say it that way. And the Rephaim, and the Amorites and the Canaanites, and the Gigasites and the Jebusites. Okay, got through that. I don't know if you guys are familiar with ancient Northeast covenants, but this is serious. This is a very legal term that God is making with Abraham. Let's say Rob and I lived at the time of Abraham, and we made a covenant with each other. And we went out there and took a, a heifer, and we cut it in half, and we separated them, and Rob and I both walked through that, that, those pieces that were cut apart, right? What we're saying is that if Rob breaks that covenant, he should be cut in half just like that heifer was. And if I break my part of the covenant, I shall be cut in half like that heifer was. All right? Abraham did not walk through this. God is the one that walks through those cut animals. God's telling Abraham, if I don't keep my covenant, I shall be cut asunder like these animals are. Do you think God is done with the Jews? I doubt it based on, based on this alone. All right, so let's go back Go back to Romans. Is that Romans 1 or something like Romans 9, chapter 9. Just leave your Bibles there. <clears throat> as soon as I, I, I read that and I got an understanding of what the what North, ancient Northeast covenants were, I was like, this is really a legal contract that God made with Abraham. So Romans 9. All right, where am I on this? Oh, there's two things to know about the Abrahamic covenant. It's unconditional, and today, this day, it's still unfulfilled. Even in the time of Solomon, some people will try to tell you, that there's theologians out there trying to tell you that the Abrahamic covenant was, was um, fulfilled in the time of Solomon. But Solomon never went over to the river Euphrates. Solomon, it was, that was a great time for Israel, boy. It was a wonderful time, and they gained a lot of land, and David and Solomon together and what they did, but that they never, never have received the full blessing that God had told them to get. In fact, in the book of Judges, I think it was, you got Caleb. When, when the nation of Israel started to slow down, Caleb, I think, he, I think that's who it was. He was like an 80, he's 84 years old. He's, he's an old man, right? He's older. And everybody else is starting to back off and Caleb's going, no, we're supposed to go there. That's what God said was supposed to take. He wanted to keep on going to the Euphrates. I'm not stopping. God said, we can have that, and I'm taking it. But the nation of Israel backed off and settled for less than what God had promised them. So two things to know about the Abrahamic covenant. It's unconditional, and it's unfulfilled. Israel's promises have not been canceled. They have been postponed until that time. So now I want to mention something. I don't know if you guys have ever read anything, but replacement theology, it's false teaching. I'm just going to call it as it is, right? A spade, a spade. It's false teaching. And replacement theology states that God has cut off the nation of Israel, and the church has now taken over the covenant of the nation of Israel. 
we're now Israel. We're now the, the, the church is now Israel. And they'll even try to go back to say that the church started when Abraham received this covenant, which is baloney because it was a mystery up to the point that Paul started writing. So I don't see how that, that could be. But replacement theology, because covenant theology is built on replacement theology to remove replacement theology from covenant theology would collapse its entire system. There's nothing left there anymore. And if you haven't figured out already, I'm not a covenant theologian. I'm a dispensationalist. I consider myself to be a classic dispensationalist. I believe in the separation of church and Israel. Two different dispensations. The time's going to come when God's going to finish his work with the, with the Gentiles. And he's going to take his blessing off the Gentiles. It's going to go back on the nation of Israel. And hopefully I have enough time to see that. I better hurry up because that's important at the end. So I got another quote here from C.E.B. Cranfield from his critical exegetical commentary on the epistles to the to Romans, page 448. These three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, emphatically forbid us to speak of the church as having once and for all taken the place of the Jewish people. But the assumption that the church has simply replaced Israel as the people of God is extremely common. And he says, and I confess with shame to have also myself used in print on more than one occasion this language of replacement theology, replacement of Israel by the church. Now, I don't know who this guy is, but I want to buy his commentary because I want to read his 9, 10, and 11 on Romans because I want to understand um, what he thinks. It, it's almost like a, um, he, he's a reformed person, and they're the worst. You know, it's like a reformed smoker. I don't know if you guys have ever been around him, but they're the worst. You, you, if, if, if anybody smokes around him, they just they go, they go bananas, you know. They, they're telling you, put it out and all that stuff. So I think this guy's commentary is probably going to be um, pretty good, at least on Romans 9, 10, and 11. So some of you might be thinking, well, so what is, why is this important? What does it matter? And you might think, as long as we're teaching the gospel, people are getting saved. Do you realize that replacement theology is fertile ground for anti-Semitism? And I'm not talking out there in the world. I'm talking right here in the church. Because you have people today in buildings being taught covenant theology or replacement theology, and they have an anti-Semitism view. And that just can't be for the church. Because God told Abraham, I will bless thee that blesses thee, and I will curse thee that curses thee. And I don't want to be a church that's teaching replacement theology with an idea of anti-Semitism behind that because I don't think that's going to really bring a lot of blessing to that church. That's my opinion. So it does matter. Good doctrine always brings on good habits, does it not? If we understand good doctrine, we're going to understand what God wants us to do and how he wants us to act. And there's also other things out there. It's just not replacement theology. But you have, you have uh, teaching out there that, that tells you that you're going to, um, we're in the kingdom now, and we're 
building the kingdom now so Christ can come back, right? Rick Warren was a big kingdom now guy, all right? And a lot of big names out there, you start following these people and start paying close attention, you start realizing, what? What's he talking about? But you realize that if, if you follow the theology that we're building the kingdom now, that that is fertile ground for the social injustice gospels, which are false gospels. You're saved by believing upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And you're indwelled with the power of the Spirit. So, and you've got, you got Christians that think we're going through the, um, the tribulation period, which I believe we're not. I think we're going to be raptured up before the, um, the, the Jacob's troubles, this last seven years of God's time clock, time clock with the nation of Israel. You've got Christians out there that think they're going to eyeball it with the Antichrist. They're storing up weapons, food, shelters, and all that because they want to kill the guy. To me, it's like good luck. Like, I don't plan on being around for the tribulation period. If you guys want to be around for that tribulation period, it, it wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be here. All right. So, if you want to write in your book, in your Bibles, Romans 9 basically tells us Israel in the past elected. Romans chapter 10, Israel in the present rejected. In Romans chapter 11, Israel in the future accepted. That's how that breaks down. So go to Romans 11.25. So what is so what is going on? So let's back back to my favorite, my important question here is what is God doing with the Jews? So in Romans eleven, verse twenty-five, it says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening hardening has come upon Israel. So God has hardened the hearts of Israel. That's what's going on. He has purposely hardened the hearts of Israel. I believe it was because of their disobedience and not accepting this Christ as their Messiah. Matthew chapter 12 will explain that. They actually accused him of being from the devil and his works from the devil. And they rejected him. Not all the, the Jews, but most of the leadership in the nation of Israel had rejected him. Until, very important word there, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, what is that? Well, what that is, is God, like I said, he hardened the hearts of Israel. He's now pouring his blessing out upon the Gentiles. And as the Gentiles are coming into the church, the bride of Christ, which we are, by the way. Do you know that? We're the bride of Christ. I've heard people say that we're going to serve the Lord in the millennial kingdom. I don't agree with that. We're going to reign with him. We're not going to serve with him. We're going to be reigning with him as his bride. So when, the, when that last Gentile comes in, now I don't know whether some Gentile is going to get on his knees and, you know, ask to be saved and then hooked on, the whole, the whole thing takes place at that moment. Um, or it could be, you know, five minutes afterwards, it could be five days, it could be five years a, a, a after it. Because I don't think the rapture of the church starts the tribulation period. 
tribulation period started when the Jews signed that covenant with the Antichrist. It's in the book of Daniel. I don't remember which chapter it is. But that's when the tribulation period was started, when they make a covenant with the Antichrist. So when the last Gentile comes in, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when the full bride of Christ has come in from the Gentiles, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And it is written, the, the deliverer from Zion will, be, will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. And that's the new covenant that was promised to them by Jeremiah, that at the end, that God would, would do that for them and put, put their laws inside their hearts, which we just happen to be third-party participants of. There's a nice legal word for it, but I don't remember what it was. So this is really not speaking of every Jew in history will be saved. As Zechariah 13, 18 to 9 states, it speaks of a nation of Israel as a remnant. So what God's going to do with the nation of Israel, and I wish I had more time, like another half an hour would be perfect. Because this Ezekiel chapter 37 of the dry bones, it's a fantastic chapter. But it's only going to be a remnant. You're going to realize that Mark Twain, in his book, The Innocents Abroad, where he went to Asia, China, and the Holy Land. And it's 1867 now, right? And he states, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse. A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. They never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. So in 1867, when Mark Twain visited the Holy Land, this is what he's saying it looked like. Do you realize the nation of Israel today has the highest GTD of any Middle Eastern country? They've come a long way. And I believe the dry bones that we, we look at in Ezekiel chapter 37 is God gathering the nation of Israel together in unbelief, right? The bones are coming together, the ligaments are there, the skin's there, the muscle's there, and he's drawing the nation, he's drawing the nation together, so restoring them, bringing them back to life, taking them out of the graves from the Gentiles where they've been oppressed, there's no political party. There's no religion going on. He's bringing them all back to the nation of Israel. And we can see that almost over, over a, not quite, not that far over 150 years, how far God has brought Israel back on the scene. And there has to be a nation of Israel. Theologians back like 150 years ago, before Mark Twain said this, those that understood dispensationalists at that, dispensationalism at that time, used to say, in order for these things to, keep, to be true, there has to be a nation of Israel. You have to have a nation of Israel restored in unbelief, brought through the tribulation period to refine, and then given the new covenant at the end, and then bring them into the millennial kingdom so that all the promises from the Abrahamic covenant can be met. Does everybody understand that? Without, without the nation of Israel, God's promises can't be taken care of. So when is the blinders removed and when is the nation saved? 
go to Zechariah. I just skipped over so much interesting stuff in the history of Israel. Even Christ in Matthew 23, 37 and 39 told him on his way to crucifixion when he was going to Jerusalem and he knew he was going to be crucified. They'd already rejected him. Christ said, oh, how I wanted to gather you like, like under my wings like, a, like um, a chicken gathers her hens. But you rejected me. And I know I'm butchering this. And you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he leaves. He's being crucified. And he's telling Israel, you're never going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to get through all of this. And I don't want to go too long and hold everybody up. But I definitely want to go to Zechariah uh, 12. I'll read one chapter and then I'll read one verse. Hang on, save. No, hang on. So, what we have there in, in Zechariah chapters 9 through 14 are the two burdens of the Lord, right? That he's, that he's giving these visions to, Je to Zechariah. And the first burden is chapters 9 to 11, and it's Israel's postponed deliverance due to her, rejector, her the reject, rejection of her Messiah. It's events pertaining to the first coming of Jesus Christ. And even the 30, 30 shekels of silver were written in that, in, that, uh, in that first burden. Zechariah, I never realized how prophetic it is. It's a wonderful book. It's a little hard to understand, but once your mind gets in there and you're rolling with it, it is unbelievable. So you have the first burden of the Lord, the first coming of Jesus Christ, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Now you have chapter 12, all right? Chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all pertaining to the second coming of Jesus Christ. If the first coming is true and all the prophecies from 9, 10, and 11 have come true, I think we can expect that, that chapters 12 and 13 and 14 are going to be true as well. So let me read through this chapter, then I want to say one verse, and then I'll close. So Zechariah, chapter 12, the second burden of the Lord. The oracles of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. You ever notice when God says that? Thus says the Lord, I am the creator, I am the sustainer, I'm the one that gave you life. He's giving you his credentials. Listen to me because this, these are my credentials. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will be against Judah. On that day, this isn't the, on that day, that phrase is not a, it's not a historical account of the nation of Israel. It's not the full tribulation period. It's not half a tribulation period. It's something that's going to take place in one specific day. All right? That something's going to happen on one specific day. And he says, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. Now, that word staggering, that Hebrew word, it has the idea of literally violent lunges from, from like intoxication. So all these nations, so all these nations that are going to be coming forth, 
against the nation of Israel on this day are going to be just intoxicated with the, just the anti-Semitism and, and the hatred for the Jews and the desire and just drunk with just destroying them and, and just plundering them and just getting them off the face of the planet. On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will certainly hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Do you ever wonder where the United States is in prophecy? There it is. I believe they're one of the, all the nations that are going to be gathered against Israel. Sad, but that's my opinion. I can't prove it, but I believe it says all the nations of the world. I think that's all the nations of the world, whether directly related in combat or directly related in financial things, whatever it might be. But I think the United States is set in that. They're part of all the nations. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, one particular day now, 24-hour day, on that day declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. For the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. When I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness, then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among, among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And if you haven't figured it out yet, that day, it's the last day of the tribulation period before Christ is getting ready to come back. He's just waiting. Just call me back. I told you before, you're not going to see me again until you call upon, until blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's all that Christ is waiting for. And boy, what Israel had to go through in that tribulation period just to get them to humble themselves in that area. And I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, here we go, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So in other words, the nation of Israel, they're getting it now. They're realizing we are in deep trouble here, all right? Even though it doesn't go in chronological order, but God is the one that's pouring this out on the nation of Israel. But they're going to look and they're going to finally realize going, oh, okay, Jesus Christ was actually our Messiah. And they're going to understand how they've lost all this blessing. And they're going to figure out that we made a huge mistake. And now you have the whole nation of Israel literally mourning as if they lost their firstborn child. And on that day, the morning of Jerusalem will be so great, the morning of Hadarinim. And I'm not even going to read through these names, but it just goes on and names all the clans of everything. So what's going to happen here, even in the next verse, I'm not going to, I don't have a time. I, I got to stop right there. But I, I, would rec I would encourage you to go home and probably read um, Zechariah, uh, both burdens, chapters 9 to 14. Yes. So finally what's happening, you have Israel 
finally humbling themselves and realizing what they had made. And they literally, I think in 13, they call upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord comes back and saves them. I think the Lord's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives where he left. And the mountain's going to split from east to west. And I've read a lot of strange, crazy thoughts when people have to really try to fit their theology into the scriptures and how they use their sanctified minds to come up with all the spiritualization of the text. But you know what that means? Christ is going to come back, step on the Mount of Olives, and going to split from east to west. You know what that means? Christ is going to come back and step on the Mount of Olives, and it's going to split from east to west. I take it literally, and I think that's exactly what's going to happen. As soon as he touches down on the earth, the second coming, now that the Jews at this point on that day, when they finally realize Christ was our Messiah, and they call him back, and that's all he's waiting for. But when you think about what God had to do for the nation of Israel to get them to this point, the severity of that. And I don't want to make, I don't want to make, I, I don't want to make fun of the Jews too much. Because I'm the same way. My stubborn heart, my stubborn head, sometimes it takes God a lot to get through my mind and to show me. And praise the Lord, we have a God that loves us and cares enough about us to do that. But you're going to see the nation of Israel, two-thirds are cut off, and one-third is left purified, given the New Testament that Jeremiah, the New Covenant that Jeremiah spoke of. One last thing, and I'm sorry to hold you up if you got stuff in the oven at home. Romans 11 and 12. Romans chapter 11. One verse, I'll read it, and that's it. I, I won't even make a comment. No, I probably will. Probably will. Romans chapter, Romans 11. I hope this is right. That doesn't look right. Verse 11. Yeah, this is what it is. Now, back to my original question, Romans 9, 10, 11. Is God done with the Jews? Zachariah doesn't tell me they are. God's going through a lot of work and a lot of purification to make sure he has a remnant that he can bring into the millennial kingdom because that's what he needs, a remnant to be taken into the millennial kingdom. And one other thing, too. One, one third of the Jews were killed in the Nazi Holocaust, right? And they said to themselves after that happened, never again. So you can explain why that's why the Jews are what they are. They don't tolerate anything. They said that's never going to happen to us again. If someone came in and wiped out one-third of Americans, the United States would do the same thing. That's never going to happen again. We're tripling up our armies. We're tripling up our Air Force. That's never going to happen again. The Jews don't realize they're losing two-thirds. And it's sad. And it is going to happen again. Two-thirds are going to be lost and cut off. So that's, that, that's frightening. But anyways, Romans 11, starting in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble, stumble in order that they might fall? Oh, by no means. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Aren't you thankful for that? So as to make Israel jealous. Oh, God's doing something through all of this. He always is. Now, in their trespasses means riches for the world. In other words, Israel's, Israel's rejection of Christ meant the riches for the world. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, 
how much more would their full inclusion mean? And he's talking about, I believe, the millennial kingdom. Once the Jews come around into faith and they're, they're brought into the millennial kingdom, how much more of a blessing is that going to be for the whole world? Even though their rejection has been a blessing to the Gentiles, how much more their full inclusion? Oh, 